It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Coming in three, two, one. Astronomy Cast, episode 561, Remembering Katherine Johnson. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts based journey through the cosmos where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. With me, as always, is Dr. Pamela Gay, a senior scientist for the Planetary Science Institute and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing today, Fraser? Good. Uh, this, I guess, is not a bonus episode. Actually, this is another bonus episode of Astronomy Cast. Uh, in the alternate universe, I would still be traveling to Japan right now. Um, but thanks to the coronavirus, I am not. And so my loss, your gain. Uh, enjoy this bonus episode of Astronomy Cast. And really, you know, for the next few months nobody's going nowhere. And so no. we will just stay right where we are, tethered to our computers, making content for your entertainment, because it just it beats the alternative of wandering <laughs> yes. out into this terrifying virus-filled planet. So the moral of the story is, folks, I find your squad on the internet, hang out, talk science, play video games. Don't leave your house. And if you do wash your hands. Yeah. And if we do end up, if things get even more serious, which it's looking like in the U S like it looks like we've got things pretty well controlled in Canada. We do Uh, not. We have a lot of testing kits available. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard there was, there's more testing done just in our province, just in British Columbia than your entire country than all of the U.S. I am not leaving my house I, yeah. as, as an immunocompromised individual yeah, who already has lung damage. I am not leaving my no. house. You cannot make me. No. Well, I'm going to garden. I'm not going to leave my yard. Yeah. I won't get vitamin right. D deficiency. Yeah. We will have fresh grass. Yeah. So I'm, I'm currently on the, uh, you know, wander around my city not feel super concerned about it um, because it looks like, you know, right now we know very, very well where the disease is in Canada. Um, But I am practicing washing my hands on a more regular basis and not touching my face, but it's super hard. So, um, but for, for all of the people who are going through this right now, I mean, especially the people in Italy, people in Iran, people in China, Japan, Seattle, uh, Seattle, Korea, uh, this is, this is growing and definitely, uh, you know, a big concern. And so we are thinking about you and I hope here's hoping that as a, just as an entire world, we really learn to come together and minimize the, the impact that this has and try to minimize the number of deaths. And, and as we all hide in our homes and our yards, this is where the weekly space hangout and the CosmoQuest Discord are your places to just come and, well, hang out with your peeps. Yeah. Come play Ticket to Ride and yeah. trash talk with us. It's fun. 
So we lost a bright star here on planet Earth last week. NASA mathematician Katherine Johnson passed away at the age of 101 after an incredible career of helping humans land on the moon. If you saw the movie Hidden Figures, you'll know who I'm talking about. Um, so it's been about a year since I saw Hidden Figures. Mm-hmm. It's not super in my brain. Did you re-review it in preparation or have you just been so, diving into biographies? I, I have to admit my inner 12-year-old was told so many times, you've got to go watch Hidden Figures. Yeah. That I never watched the movie or read the book. What? <laughs> so, oh my god! Um, my inner twelve-year-old is sometimes an idiot. Yeah, but I have gone and read a bunch of other biographies. Okay, yeah. And and in preparation for the show, I actually discovered an error on one of NASA's biographies oh, good. that has me somewhat annoyed. Yeah. But um. So no. I, b- before we get into this this week's episode, I want to provide a bit of a disclaimer. Mm-hmm. for me. Okay. Which is that I think, you know, although I do sound like an American, I'm not an American. I'm a Canadian. And so we don't I don't have the same kind of like institutionalized racism towards African Americans in my childhood, in my day-to-day growing up in in our society in on the west coast of of Canada, in in the same way, you know, like if you didn't grow up in Australia, you don't necessarily have the same um, institutionalized racism towards Aboriginal Australians. And if you don't like what we have here in Canada is institutionalized um, racism towards um, uh, to First Nations people, right. and that's the term that we use in Canada. Um, very specifically for me, you know, my sister is First Nations. So I grew up very closely watching what impact it had on her as a, you know, as a child, as a teenager growing up. And, and so there is this, um, I know there is this just cultural scar that a lot of people feel on all sides of this as growing up as an American, and so I just want to apologize in advance that, that I didn't grow up this way. And so I will stumble around in this topic because I just, you know, this is not something that I felt firsthand. It's only secondhand watching media, seeing, you know, I've watched tons of movies, I understand. And, and you feel it a bit when you're traveling around in the United States, but it is, you know, it is not my, my personal experience. So I just want to kind of apologize in advance if I don't use the correct terminology or I just don't. You know, I just don't have that personal experience. All right. Let's get on with it. Um, So who is Katherine Johnson? (laughs) So I just want to follow up and say, uh, I'm a white lady. I'm going to make mistakes too. I have no excuse. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm learning. Yeah. But you you have a little bit of an insight to the, you know, your husband. Your husband is like, you know, I am interchangeable with your husband in terms of just my cultural upbringing. And so you probably have just watched him interact with America and just and just see a certain amount of cluelessness that as he travels around inside that country that he's building it, I'm sure, you know, he's building, well, he's getting clues, but he just is clueless anyway. Uh, but I don't want to take away from, I don't want to take away from the topic. So let's, let's dig into Catherine Johnson and, you know, people can inform me about my cluelessness later on. Who was she? 
<laughs> All right. So, so Catherine Johnson was the youngest of a whole large happy family. Uh, growing up in uh, Southern America in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. She had three older siblings and her family, uh, her mom was a school teacher. Her dad uh, had a variety of different jobs over his lifetime. And as they watch their youngest child grow up, they realize as so many parents end up realizing, oh, wow, our kid, our kid, like all kids are smart. This, this one's, wow, we need to do something. And, and they actually shifted their entire lives to make sure that their youngest daughter could get an education that she couldn't have gotten at home. Uh, born in 1918, she actually faced, well, racism her entire life. Where she grew up, they only educated people of color through eighth grade. Beyond eighth grade, you couldn't get an education at all. So her family looked around and they discovered that the historically black college, the West Virginia State College, had a high school for black children. And when their daughter was 13, they decided to uproot their family from White Sulphur Springs and spend the school year in institute where the university was and then spend their summers back in White Sulphur Springs. Wow. And and that's just amazing. And this is the kind of thing that we're used to hearing about with, oh, we discovered our child was this amazing ice skater, this amazing gymnast, and we moved to where they could get proper training. Well, in this case, they discovered their child was a mathematical genius. And they did that same thing that we're so used to hearing about with athletes' children. Now, she finished high school extraordinarily young. Um, She graduated high school at 14. (laughs) And promptly, well, when you do high school at a historically black college, you have the opportunity to attend it. And she graduated at age 18. Now, unfortunately, when you're a woman and it's the 1930s, you don't have a lot of career options. And when you're a black woman, you have even less. So she did the one thing that would let her keep doing math at that time, and she became a school teacher. And for a lot of years, that's, that's what she did. But... Luckily, integration did start in her lifetime. And um, when they went to finally desegregate the University of West Virginia in 1938, she was one of three students that West Virginia State College, the historically black schools, put forward as these are the people you should use to integrate your graduate college. And and this arose due to legislation that said, well, if you offer programs for white students, you have to offer them in the state for black students. So in 1938, she, along with 
two black gentlemen that had also gone to the same school she did. They entered the graduate program for mathematics. Now, as often happens to women, she became pregnant and couldn't finish her graduate degree. That just wasn't a thing in the 1930s and 40s. It's still not really a thing in a lot of places. So she she and her, her husband settled down. They had three children. And she focused on them eventually returning to the workforce, as again, so many women do, continuing to be a teacher. But in the 1950s, when she was 35 years old, so graduated university at 18, now at 35, after raising three kids, after working as a school teacher, one of her family members had read about an opportunity at the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. NACA. They were hiring. Is it yeah, NASA? NACA. NACA? It was NACA. Yeah. Back in the beginning, it was NACA. So this was 1952. This is uh, before NASA is a thing. And they were hiring out at the Langley Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory in Hamilton, Virginia. So Virginia, born and raised, stayed there through her life. They were hiring mathematicians and they were hiring colored people. That was the language of the time. And she applied. And um, in reading the things that she said about that time, she earned my respect because she took the job knowing full well that she was going to get put in a room that said colored people Mm -hmm. on the door, that she was going to be just another female computer because back then math was something that those women will go do. I have no clue where the idea that women are bad at math came into the zeitgeist. Yeah. But um, she took the job because it let her do math. And she'd long ago settled on wanting research mathematics to be her career. And she wrote over and over that Sure, there was racism. Sure, there were discrimination because of gender, which means she was facing both. (laughs) But she didn't see it because she did the math. Right, right. But I mean, and and this, as you said, right, was was a big thing back in the, you know, back in the day, the term computer, we use that now for a piece of silicon and plastic and metal that goes beep boop on our desk. But a long time ago, computers were people, mostly yes. women who yes. just crunched really complicated mathematics that were then used for various practical purposes like dropping bombs or, <laughs> or um, figuring out rocket trajectories. And, and if you think about it. Bombs. I guess there's bombs that you drop and bombs that you hurl sideways, various ways to throw bombs at other people. Women did the math. It's true. They did other things as well. There was the Harvard College Observatory pool of women computers that did astrophysical calculations. But um, as she put it, she was a computer who wore skirts. (laughs) And computer means someone who computes. 
So the word is is just we've lost it over time. A miller is someone who mills. Yeah. A computer is someone who computes. A robber, someone who robs. Is someone who robs. Yeah. Um, and initially she was put in this pool of women at NACA um, who were doing analytical geometry tasks and other basic computing tasks. But everything got to change for Catherine when she was given on loan to one of the early aeronautical groups. And she was so good at analytic geometry that they forgot to return her to the pool of women that she'd been working in. And and so she got to, in some ways, escape the here, just mindlessly do all of these calculations drudgery and instead got to be part of that group of humans who were figuring out the new space race, who were figuring out, well, what is the launch window for the Gemini missions to get them in an orbit that will get them back home where and when we want? What are the, well, one of my favorite things that she did was getting to the moon is actually far easier than getting back. (laughs) And she's the one who figured out exactly how to do the re-entry so that they would end up near the ship that was going to pick them up. Because our world is big. You need to get the return down right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. There's a a great quote, and I'm probably sort of... um, saying it a little wrong but but the gist being that you know she worked on alan shepard's first flight made the calculations to figure mm-hmm. out what his trajectory was going to be and then she was the backup for the actual like silicon computer that was used to calculate i guess it was vacuum tubes back it was then vacuum yeah. tubes, the vacuum yeah. tube computer that did the calculations for john glenn's trajectory and when asked when john glenn was asked if if he felt okay doing this trip he specifically said if Catherine johnson is okay with the math then then i'm then i'm good to go well it was more than that he basically said uh she needs to do the math right. yes yeah but if <laughs> so if she if if she confirms that the computer is right then i'm then i'm good to fly but not until she is certain And in describing her own role in a lot of this, she was always quick to say that she basically barged into each situation she knew she belonged in when people were trying to keep her out. One of my favorite examples of this is she's the first woman to have her name as an author on a NASA technical report. Up until then, they'd had women who worked on the content in reports, but it was always the lead man who had their name as the author. Well, there, there is a researcher uh, who she had been working with, uh, Ted Skopinski, and he wanted to transfer from Langley to Houston. And the people above him were like, we need you to finish this report. And he eventually was like, just have Catherine do it. I'm out of here. It was a little fancier than that, but that was what it boiled down to is Ted Skabinski said, Catherine's been doing all the work, have her finish it. And then she put her name on the report. 
And so this is essentially how she broke one barrier down. And it was over and over her saying, I need to be in this room. I did this work. I did this. And asserting herself. And this is where I often think that when she said that she didn't see the gender barriers and she didn't see the racism, that the reality is she simply disregarded a lot of this and fought to be in the room. Right. Probably went through a lot of her life thinking that it was her own forthrightness that was getting her into trouble, that it was her own assertiveness that was getting her into trouble. A lot of women feel this. <laughs> and so instead of seeing where it was a gender bias, instead of seeing where it was a color bias, what she saw was, I'm assertive. I'm going to I'm going to tick people off, but I'm doing the right thing. Right. Well, I mean, and at the end of the day, like, no amount of of racism or sexism will overcome the laws of nature, of gravity, right? And so if you've got the person who is absolutely the best at running these calculations the most accurately, the most quickly, with the most creativity, time and time again... you're going to have to deal, you're going to be confronted by just this reality. If you want the best person for the job, you want the best person for the job. And, and so you're going to have to, to accept it, which, which kind of, of sucks, you know, because, you know, for, for the, for the rest of us, we get this sort of assumption that we're already the best for the job, just based on the color and how we look. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we don't have to necessarily climb those mountains every time we just want to do anything but and and one of the things that really disturbed me in preparing for this podcast she retired in 1986 so that's a long life a long career and you can find online a list of all of her awards and she won over and over the Langley Research Center Special Achievement Awards, 71, 80, 84, 85, 86. A lot of that was for her work with this, the uh, space shuttle program. She became one of the people who really understood how the wire and metal computers worked and was able to transform the computations she knew how to do on paper into the software necessary to do them on the computers that weren't human beings, the non-biological computers. And she got a NASA Group Achievement Award during the Apollo program. And then she retired in 86, and she enjoyed all of her grandchildren. This is a woman who had a rich life. She used to joke about how important it was to work hard and play bridge during lunch. <laughs> she, she was a member of the same church for 50 years. She had 11 grandchildren and she enjoyed all of that living. She retired in 86 and it was only then that people started to acknowledge everything that she had accomplished. Apparently it took her absence for, her, for people to see her worth. In 98, she got an honorary doctorate degree from SUNY. In 99, West Virginia State College, that place where she did her high school and her bachelor's degree, they declared her an outstanding alumni. 
it was then in 2006 where the awards start to come in at a higher and higher pace as people start trying with urgency to determine, well, who are the forgotten heroes of STEM? And she was literally a hidden figure until people looked to shine a light on the women and people of color who faced so much integrating well, in her case, mathematics. Um, in 2017, they named NASA named one of its its supercomputer center uh, after her. The, yes. So there's the Catherine G. Johnson Computational Research Facility, which is I think at Langley. Yeah, at NASA's Langley, at Langley Center. Langley. Yeah, which is great. You know, huge building, huge supercomputers and, inside, and the ones made of metal and silicon. And the same day that they commemorated the building in her honor. Uh, Leland uh, Leland Melvin, who was the de- then NASA administrator, gave her what's called the Snoopy Achievement Award. This is an award that astronauts get to pick who they want to give it to. And it's given in the workplace among peers to people who have done remarkable things to improve the safety of traveling to space. And if anyone improved the safety, it's the person who made the calculations to make sure they could get there and get home later. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, I mean, part of why we are doing this episode this week is is she passed away uh, last yes. week at the age of 101. Yes. Which is pretty amazing. And the last few years of her life, she proved over and over that while her body was frail, her mind was nimble. She gave some remarkable addresses. She received the Presidential Medal of Honor from Obama. She received the Congressional Medal of Honor. And she continued showing up and speaking, well, as an advocate for STEM, as an advocate for following your passion, as an advocate for... Well, you can be a teacher, you can be a mom, and then you can get people back safely when their spacecraft goes boink, because she's the one who figured out their trajectories to get Apollo 13 back. Yeah. We need these role models. How many times do you and I get asked, can I get involved with NASA? I'm late in my life. Yeah. She did it. Yeah. And, I mean, just in in anything right which is like there there is still across the planet there's still plenty of 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 racism and sexism yeah. and all kinds of reasons nationalism like all these reasons why people are disadvantaged to be able to um to be able to achieve the same kinds of things in life and yet clearly if you are willing to put in the work and you're willing to never accept no for an answer, you can achieve great things and help culture catch up with what is, what is right. And, and, and we all are always attracted to these, to these situations. And, and it's, you know, can you promise that you'll watch the movie? Cause it's great. (laughs) I will. I will. Yeah. And, and the one thing I just want, to put in people's minds is you don't accomplish something 
by being nice all the time. And she over and over had to be a polarizing figure who ticked people off by sticking her nose in the room and saying, I belong here. Mm -hmm. And there are a whole lot of women out there who are told, and I'm one of them, well, you're polarizing. Maybe we shouldn't let you do this because there are people who don't like you because Mm -hmm. you rub them the wrong way. Well, if you're always nice, you can't open the door. But once that door is open, hopefully other people won't have to fight so hard. Hopefully, well, it won't take retirement for the next stunningly brilliant black woman to be seen for what she's worth. Hopefully they'll recognize it while she's there making her breakthroughs. Yeah. And I think that's the hope, right? Is that you get, is that what were impediments that need to be overcome, which do make you stronger um start turning on ramps (laughs) they don't make you stronger Uh, they show you how strong you are and scar you deeply (laughs) i you know i I think that a certain amount of challenge the ideal amount of challenge there's an ideal amount of challenge that helps us grow and get better at what we do and you know there are certain situations where Sometimes we wouldn't get where we would be without the challenge, but at the same time, you want it to be healthy, supportive challenges, right? You know, I, on their birthday, on my son's birthday, we went out and got him his driver's license because I wanted him to begin driving. And he was initially resistant because it was going to be hard and it was going to be scary, but we did it and we got it and he did it. And now he loves it. Right. And so you want to be able to, to be encouraging, but also challenging. And, Mm -hmm. and so I think, you know, the more of this situation where you can have these positive, supportive, but Mm -hmm. challenges out there, the better we'll all be as, as a society, as opposed to us seeing sort of the survivorship bias of the people who were unwilling to give up no matter how awful life was to them to be able to accomplish great things. And, and Catherine Johnson is on the, on the far side of that spectrum of, of being unwilling to quit no matter what was, was put in her way. And we who are fans of space are, and just, all of the space flight that happened beyond that point is uh, a tribute to, to what she was able to accomplish. Yeah, it's, it's my fervent hope that the challenges that force people forward are the ones of needing to innovate new technology, of needing to work in extreme environments and not the hostile workplace. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Right. But she did amazing things and she made it possible for so many others to see themselves as the kind of person who does amazing things. Yeah. So we are grateful. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you for everything you did. And, and, and we're, but I mean, I would say we're sorry to see you go, but 101, we should all be yeah. so lucky to live exactly. 101. Uh, surrounded by friends and family and uh, and endless games of bridge <laughs> and mathematics. <laughs> Pamela, uh, do you have some names for us this week? I do. 
So this month, we would like to thank the following people for everything they do to keep this show going through their patronage at patreon.com slash astronomycast. I would like very much to thank Jordan Young, Burry Gowan, Frodi Tenabau, Ramji Anamanthu, Andrew Palestra, David Troig, Brian Cagle, The Giant Nothing, Laura Kettleson, Robert Palesma, Corey Duvall, Paul Garman, Les Howard, Joss Cunningham, Emily Patterson, A Blip in the Universe, and The Infinitesimal Ripple in Space-Time. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Bye-bye, and wash your hands. Yes. You are listening to the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. This show is made possible thanks to the generous donations of people like you. Please consider supporting our show on Patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and get access to bonus content. After 10 years, the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is entering its second decade of sharing important milestones in space exploration and astronomy discoveries. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye.